Hey everybody, Michael here. I am so excited for you to listen to today's episode. And before you do, I'm going to give you one quick editor's note. When we are finished recording the podcast that you're about to listen to, one of the things that did not show up in any of our equipment while we were recording is that there is a slight echo whenever our guest, who you are about to meet, whenever he would talk. And while he's talking, you don't really hear it. It's only like when he's done talking, you hear like a little bit of the, of the echo that kind of comes back. And so the, our conversation was so incredible I was, uh, that I didn't want to re-record it. So we just went ahead and published it. And so I apologize in advance if, for those of you who feel bothered by it, I'm going to encourage you to press through it because what Dr. Royer has to say is incredible. Um, and for those of you who maybe were like, am I hearing an, an echo? Yes, you are hearing an echo. So with that said, that's my editor's note. Again, thank you for joining with us and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today is our final episode focused on living with intention as we are now into the third month of 2020. And I'm thrilled about today's episode because we have with us someone who has looked at my brain, diagnosed my brain, and strengthened my brain. And after all of that, he's not afraid of anything he's seen. And you already may be thinking to yourself, what? Like, what are you talking about? And what does brain have to do with our changing faith, as we call the podcast? Uh, And so let me start there. First, we are whole beings. And as we will learn today, our brain has everything to do with our health, our wholeness, and our faith. But let me take a big step back and tell you how uh, all of this started. Uh, I've known our guest for a lot of years. And uh, with that in mind, every summer, my family and I spend time in Southern California. And several years back, we were on the beach with some friends talking about our work and our families and our struggles, the sort of thing you do when you catch up with people you haven't seen in a while. And my friend that we were visiting, he and I were walking down the beach, and he started telling me about this brain work he had been doing for a few years. And I was intrigued, and then he finally said to me, you have to try it. Um, I don't know what he was assuming about what he thought was going on in my brain, but I spent some time hemming and hawing, wondering if I should do it. And after I learned more about the process, I jumped in. And I'm telling you, it has provided so much insight into how I work and think and manage my time. And this has all led to profound changes and greater intention for me, not only because my brain is stronger, but because I have more awareness of how the thing actually works. And the person who looked at my brain years ago is with us today. His name is Dr. Timothy Royer. He is known by many of us as Doc. Tim is a neuropsychologist based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is the founder of Royer Neuroscience. He's analyzed over 50,000 brains, and he's here with us today. Tim, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Man, it's great to be with you today, Michael. Yes, great to have you. So... Go ahead. Even with that brain of yours, it's still good to be with you today. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we made an agreement. We're not going to talk about my brain specifically. Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) We won't. So first off, you're a neuropsychologist. So what is that? What is it that you do? Yeah. So a neuropsychologist is somebody who's uh, measuring the brain, analyzing the brain. Um, My doctoral work is in clinical psychology and then specializing in neuropsych. So most of my career, uh, the first half of my career was primarily in hospital settings, uh, analyzing brains that have been injured or going through a a disease process and helping physicians understand how the brain is functioning. um, If it's a child academically or if it's an adult, uh, their memory functioning, um, the brain as a whole unit analyzing that. Uh, some people think of a psychologist, you know, lay on the couch and tell me about your childhood. Um, that's not <laughs> the kind of psychologist I am. Uh, it's more a very data-driven, uh, very uh, quantitative analysis of the functioning of the brain. And that's important too, because some people can hear about the work that you do, and it sounds a little bizarre, maybe a little magic, but this is yeah. hard data science is that right? 
Yeah, and actually what I've uh, really done over the last 15 years is taken that data and gone as far as we can with it to now we're going to be talking about uh, the electrical frequencies in the brain that make the brain work uh, and the physics of some of these uh, frequencies that's extremely quantitative uh, that let us be able to measure the, the brain uh, in very particular detail and all different aspects of the brain. Uh, the brain's a very uh, vast thing. Um, and the data lets us be able to measure things and not just work with it subjectively, but know where we're going and set a roadmap for people. And is, is this science that you're, I mean, you see, it's somewhat pioneering. Am I right? That this is a newer thing that's happening in the medical community? Um, I would say, um, it's not that I've created that. Uh, I think what the area that I would say that I, uh, made my greatest strength is taking some stuff that's it's very deep scientifically, uh, very sometimes confusing, uh, looking at EEGs and brainwave activity and really putting that into um, language that the common man can understand and developing software uh, and tweaking that so that, you know, you could look at a computer and say, oh, that's what my brain's doing and understand that. Whereas, you know, when this first started 40, 50 years ago, the data is, you know, very, very complex, and very few people really would understand that. Uh, now, my all my clients are clients that uh, understand the neuroscience of the brain, and when they look at their brain on a computer, they know what their brain's doing, and they know why they're not sleeping. They know why their creativity is not as strong as it should be, or if they're an athlete, why they're not performing well. And so, let, let's start with what led you. Uh, into this work because you were you mentioned you worked at some hospitals and you've talked before about uh, you were working at a children's hospital and you began to discover something about kids brain waves and their diagnosis can you talk a little bit about that sure so um, I finished my doctoral work in 94 uh, 1994 and um, uh, from there I started working at a, a children's hospital in Michigan uh, and became division chief of pediatric psychology at that children's hospital. Great job, kind of a dream job right out of graduate school, one that you kind of aspire to your whole life. And I landed in this job. Um, and at that children's hospital, they didn't have any neuropsych services, behavioral health services. So I was kind of on the front edge of developing this entire uh, center for this hospital. And as I started to work there, we grew from that first year. We saw, oh, 150, 160 clients for the hospital to upwards around 5,000 by the time I left Whoa. there in the early 2000s. So we were seeing a lot of kids. And um, I loved it, thought I was going to be in this job forever. But about six, seven years in, I started to notice some things that really weren't lining up with what I was taught in school. And so uh, one of the things was you're taught – in psychology or as a diagnostician clinician, how to put people into buckets really fast or, or like how do I diagnose so I can move this person on either into therapy or medication or whatever the intervention is. And so there's these buckets that you uh, learn out of this manual that's called the DSM-5. And um, you learn all these categories. And I started to find out real quickly that um, – everybody doesn't always fit so neatly into all these buckets. And one of the ones that was really kind of coming on the scene at that point was ADHD. So it's early nineties, mm. uh, in the, around 1990, about one out of 20 kids was diagnosed with ADHD. You get into the early two thousands and it's about one in 13, 2012, 2013, uh, one in 10. Now it's about one in seven, one in eight, kids gets diagnosed wow. with ADHD and get this if you're a low income male okay so you're a boy low income you have a one in three chance of getting diagnosed with ADHD to me as I started to look at that there's other variables at play here either we're experiencing an epidemic of just massive proportion and we need to check what we're drinking and eating because everybody's yeah. getting ADHD <laughs> Or are we seeing something here that maybe is us not taking the right amount of time to look at the brain before we get a diagnosis? So hmm. we are still measuring the brain the same way that it was measured 
1906, when the first person was diagnosed, it had a different name, but diagnosed with an attention disorder. Okay, so that's 113 years. We're doing it the same way. We're asking questions. We're analyzing behaviors. Nobody's looking at the brain. There's no other organ in the body that we analyze the same way we did over 100 years ago. But when it comes to behavioral psychological things, we're just looking at subjective behaviors. Nobody's like scanning the brain, looking at the brain, measuring the brain. You know, many times you're in and out of your doctor's office 15, 20 minutes, and you're walking out the door with a prescription control to substance for your child uh, that they're going to probably take pretty much the rest of their life because there's no exit strategy because nobody's looked at the brain. So this stuff wasn't kind of fitting with my thinking of this. So I said, what would happen? We have all these kids coming in. What would happen if we really took the time to analyze their brain and study it for three, four hours before we make a diagnosis? Well, we had about a thousand a, sub, a sample of a thousand kids that were diagnosed with ADHD for more than five years, and they had to be on three different meds. So these are like the worst, of the worst. Well, what we found out was a third of them didn't even have the disorder. So these are like the worst, Whoa. of the worst. Didn't have yeah, a third, a third had it, but it was secondary to something like a learning disability, depression, anxiety other things going on, sleep problems, like a third of children with ADHD have sleep problems that nobody's looking at. And, and so am I was, right to say, like, if you're, if you're super tired, like if you're sleep deprived, your brain begins doing things that look like ADHD. Am I right to say that? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I was, I was over, uh, uh, in Europe a while back and came home and a couple days into it, I'm in the kitchen and my wife's looking at me like, are you listening to me? You've been, you know, you're not focusing. And well, I've had jet lag, right? But had I walked into my doctor's office and described the things I was feeling, he would have definitely said, man, you're having an attention problem. And many of these kids, nobody's doing a sleep study on them. And we do, when, when I do an analysis, I send out equipment to people's homes. Part of that is a three night sleep study. So we can see what yeah. the brain is doing while sleeping. So this was one of the things that was very concerning was not just ADHD, but across the board, we're getting diagnosed with things based on behaviors and nobody's looking at the brain. And then the immediate knee jerk reaction is take a pill, take a pill. And I got to think that this thing that is the most wondrous thing in the universe, if it can learn quantum physics, I think it can learn to focus. I think if it can learn <laughs> biomolecular chemistry, I think it can learn to be less anxious or learn to sleep. Hmm. And that really pushed me into the computer technology side of things in the early 2000s, where we were able to create interfaces that let people see what their brain's doing so they can actually change it without needing to chemically change it at all times. And so this is this is now the work uh, that you've been doing. So yeah. take us through the process. If somebody walks into, like you're sitting there in a room, you have your equipment, somebody walks in uh, and they, they want you to look at their brain or they want to, whether it's diagnosis or whatever it is, what is it that you do? If you can walk yeah. us through from start maybe to, I don't know if there is an end, but an ending point. Yeah, I think that uh, requires a little bit of an educational base for us to think about. And so let us let me layer that first, okay, a foundation. is First, we need to understand that the way we're created, uh, that every single person is unique, okay? There's not 8 million people in the same bucket. Every brain is unique, and I've learned that more and more as I go, is that you have to look at each brain solely unique. So, there, Michael, there could be thousands of you, millions of Michaels on the planet, but there will never ever from the beginning of time to the end of time be a Michael that's exactly like you. God has made your brain thank, thank very, God. very special. <laughs> and I think your wife is very happy for the rest of the population. There's only one of you. But you have to, you have to go into an assessment with that almost theological understanding is that God fearfully and wonderfully made 
each of these brains and everyone's different. And I'm not going to just put them in a bucket, but I got to see what's in there and see what's going on. So that's the main principle to start. And then the other thing we need to understand is how does this thing work? So the body and brain were all works off of electricity. Okay. Everything that you do requires electrical current for me to reach out and grab my coffee cup. I need to use electrical signals from the left side of my brain that go down the spinal cord out to my right hand and grab that cup, that coffee cup in a three dimensional world and the muscles flex and I use electrical current. Okay. So everything in me functions off of electricity. Okay. Now, the big question to ask is, where the heck is this stuff coming from? Like, Hmm. I don't plug myself in like an iPhone, okay? I I know at the end of the day, I better plug that iPhone in or I'm not going to have the electricity going to the battery so that I have battery power all day. So I find a plug, right? Or we're in the airport. Get me a plug right away, right? Or I need my computer charged. But as a human, (laughs) you are dependent on electrical current to keep you alive, If I stop the electrical current for just a few seconds, you will die. Your brain will stop working, right? So everything in you, I mean, think about like if you've ever had an EKG, what were they measuring? They were measuring electricity in your heart to see how it's functioning. If you ever had an EMG, which is a muscle, like you had a bad muscle, they're measuring electrical current in your muscle. An EEG, electroencephalogram, is measuring electricity in your brain. And so the question is, where does this come from? Okay. So not only do we use electricity constantly, every minute from the time we're conceived until the time we die, we will need electrical current. Not only do we need it, but we actually manufacture it. Like we are walking power plants and we're the most efficient power plants that exist in the universe. Okay. I mean, is this crazy? Think about it. Oh no, I love this stuff. This is why this is why I wanted you on. This is the most fascinating stuff to me. Yeah. I mean, you are a walking power plant. You're better than any nuclear plant, coal plant, <laughs> solar, whatever it is. You are amazing, right? And so what do I do? I eat an apple and I drink water and I convert that into electricity. I mean, it's just crazy. It keeps me alive, right? And so I'm making this electricity. So the question to ask is, how do I make it? Okay, basic, we know right off the bat, food. Okay, you got to have food. But the thing is, I can go a few weeks without food, right? And I'm still working. So my body's able to store these things. Food is super important. Nutrition is very, very important. Clean power is made off of clean food. Dirty power, it's made off of dirty food. We need good, clean power. That's very important food. But I would put that at number three, or number four. Number three, I would say, is an order of importance, would be hydration, okay? Mm-hmm. We know the negatives of be- about being around electricity and water, right? You don't stand in a puddle when there's an open power line sitting in the puddle because water transmits electrical current. Well, on the positive side, since we're reliant on electricity, We need to be taking in hydration for the electricity to work, right? I can't go weeks without water. I can go a couple days, okay? But it's super important. Then the electricity stops. Number two that most people aren't thinking about is sleep. Sleep, sleep, sleep. And I think sleep is at the heart of almost uh, all the stress-related diagnoses, problems that we're experiencing, the problems with obesity, type 2 diabetes, all kinds of stuff. Sleep is an integral part of this that people are so deprived in sleep. Um, if you go seven days without sleep, you will go psychotic. You'll have no mm. touch with reality. You won't know who you are. <clears throat> if you go 13, 14 days, you'll die. Okay, so think about what's going to kill you in 13, 14 days. Sleep. No sleep will kill you, mm. right? And we're living in a culture where people are depriving themselves of the most important thing that they need, which is sleep. And uh, that's gotten worse. In the early 1900s, it was nine, nine hours of sleep a night. Now people are under seven hours in the United States of sleep a night, and it's killing them. Number two is sleep. Number one, hands down, main productor of electrical current is oxygen. 
oxygen, huge. And people don't realize this, but 90%, that's nine zero percent of the energy you make comes from oxygen. And nobody's talking about how you're taking in oxygen when it comes to your brain health. When you go in for that ADHD diagnosis, your doctor isn't saying, hey, let's talk about how you're breathing. Or you've got that sleep problem where you can't sleep at night. Nobody's talking to you about the oxygen flow. But you would be amazed at when we teach people how to breathe before we ever even get to work on their brain, how it starts to change their blood pressure, their sleeping, their creativity, their focus, their stress resilience, their immune system. New neurotransmitters are created when we breathe correctly. So, and you, I've heard you. And and let me ask you about that. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was, one of my memories of you way back was um, you were preaching at this church that I attend. And um, I remember our main pastor wasn't preaching. And so I was like, oh, who's this guy preaching? And I hadn't put two and two together that we were connected through your, through me going to Cedarville and your brother going to Cedarville many years ago. And I kind of went out into the, the lobby and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, our pastor's not preaching today. And all of a sudden I hear this voice inside start talking about the vagus nerve. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you remember this? And I I'm do like, remember this. I'm like, who's talking about the vagus nerve? Like I've actually got somebody in there that know he knows what he's talking about. So I like come running in and I'm like, tell What's he going to say about the vagus nerve and about our health and everything? It was like one of the best sermons I think I've ever heard Uh, of of integration of science and faith. And so when you're breathing, what gets activated when you're breathing correctly is your vagus nerve. And that's what allows your body to put the brake pedal on. Which comes comes from the Latin word – Va- uh, what is it, vagus, which is vagabond to wander because the, the vagus nerve goes through everything and controls all your major systems. But it's interesting, uh, when I started doing the, the breathing exercises, I had this one distinct memory. I was at home. I'm sitting at our dining room table breathing. This is like right before dinner. And our kids come like thundering in, and one of them spills a glass of milk, and it just goes everywhere. And yes. I had... <laughs> I had, I had been breathing for 10 minutes and I had this moment where everything slowed down and I was like, huh, this, we have a lot to clean up, (laughs) but it was the most calming centering. Like I was fully present to what was happening and I was okay with it. I was able to see it. Um, and I actually, I start almost every day. I'm not going to say every day, almost every day with 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, I'll read a text from the, uh, from scripture and then I'll sit for 15 and 20 minutes and I'll do a breath prayer. So I say one thing on the inhale and another thing on the exhale. So like this morning, my, my inhale was God, I have nothing. God, you will give me something on this breath prayer. And I do the, the. I'm stealing some of your thunder, but it's the six breaths per minute is the, You love this. Uh, I love is the it. ideal, but the average American yeah. breathes how many breaths per minute? All right around 15 to 16 is ridiculous. We're killing ourselves. And then the average <laughs> second the average second grader is breathing 21 breaths a minute. And oh one goodness. of the problems with the diagnosis that, that people are getting wrong is these kids are so anxious because they're breathing so shallow and fast. And we have to restructure that. So rather than just, hey, you know, let's do some deep breathing, I have technology that actually we send out to people that a device wraps around their belt, around their waist, so I can measure their breathing patterns. And then we hook up a sensor that measures their heart because your breathing and your heart are closely connected. And you can start to breathe in such a way that your heart starts to relax and get in this state of coherence where it's perfectly balanced. And so what you experienced at the table was a heart that was in coherence. So basically your uh, resiliency for stress was tripling, if not quadrupling, because you were giving your heart the right amount of oxygen. So what normally would have been something that set you off, 
you were able to absorb that because the heart wasn't reactive to the environment because you were controlling it with your breathing. So that's like step one for us is to go after the breathing. But I'm kind of jumping ahead, so I'm going to reverse back a little bit. So, oh, yeah. So we make – this is so much fun. I'm having a riot here. <laughs> this is great being with you. So um, number one is breathing. So we know we make energy from these things. So we got to – we manufacture it, and it's a, it's a gift. Our, bra- our breathing is a gift from God. You know, and I think you think back in the garden, what's the first thing that God does for man? Yep. He breathes into him life. Yes. We remind and, our congregation here that every breath is an interaction with the divine life. It's beautiful. Um, so I love that that's what you're saying. It's essential for our health. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, this and, is and, so great. And from a science standpoint, when you're breathing, you're a healthier being. And I would say you're a more whole and integrated being. And the other thing is when we get this breathing fixed and you're not 18 breaths a minute, but you're six breaths a minute, what starts to happen, and you know this firsthand, but all the different people I work with, the first thing they say to me is, I am just more aware of what's going on around me. I am more present, present. And I've worked with many pastors, many different people who are like, I'm just trying to work through my spiritual disciplines but like three minutes in, my mind is off someplace else. I cannot mm-hmm. be present. Or I'm talking to somebody in the congregation, and I'm not there. I'm someplace else. But I start to recalibrate this nervous system, and all of a sudden, my presence goes from 5% to 95%. And when we think about people who have changed our lives, anybody, any of your listeners, think about somebody who's been a life changer for you. That was somebody who was present who was with you in that moment, not just 5%, but 95%, 100%, they were right with you. They walked that path with you. And that starts with that breathing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. so, so we get these things that make the energy. And then the second thing is how do we manage it? How do we manage the electrical current? So we're making it. We have this reservoir of it. And now we have to decide how we use it. <laughs> this is so amazing how God has created us. Okay. So what we have is this thing called the autonomic nervous system. Now we don't want to get too complicated here, but uh, autonomic nervous system, just think of the ANS. So what this is like, this is like a software system that works off of the hardware, which is the brain and the spinal cord. And so the software system is analyzing the environment all the time, analyzing constantly And it's using five input devices that we have to get input about what's going on in the environment. And those five input devices are our senses. You know, we're taking in through our senses information about the environment. And then the autonomic nervous system says, okay, based on this sensory input, I'm now going to determine how much energy or electricity you need to use at this moment in time based on my five sensory inputs, right? And so sight, sound, touch, smell. And so these things are coming in. And based on that data, then my my autonomic nervous system says, okay, you need to now go really, really fast. Or based on the input, you need to go really, really slow or be right in the middle. So a good example is let's say I stepped outside and there was a lion outside, a real lion like standing outside, (laughs) right? And I see it and I hear it. The data comes in within milliseconds to my autonomic nervous system, and now it decides to go really, really fast, which is called a sympathetic response. And in that moment, it's going to use a lot of electricity. It's going to go super fast. And what's going to happen is the brain's going to light up like a Christmas tree, and then it's going to send a signal to the hypothalamus which is then going to send a chemical reaction to the pituitary gland, which is then going to send a chemical reaction to my adrenal glands. And my adrenal glands are going to pump out adrenaline. And that adrenaline is going to get pumped out so that I now absorb three times more sugar than I normally would. Also, I can have more energy to run from the lion. Now, are we fearfully and wonderfully made or what? It is crazy. <laughs> this literally happens in milliseconds. That the autonomic nervous system says, hey, we got to wake up here and we got to give Tim a lot of energy so he can get out of this situation. 
and it gives me the energy so I can run. Okay. Hmm. Great book for your readers is a book written by a neurobiologist from Stanford called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Okay. <laughs> so, so let's take this a little bit further. Okay. In the animal kingdom, it's always one-to-one. If a zebra sees a lion, it autonomic nervous system goes fast, uses a lot of energy. It's in this fight flight for state. And then the chase is over. What do you think the zebra does? It relaxes. And it now goes into a slow state to recover, which is called parasympathetic. In our circles, we would call that Sabbath, <laughs> where yeah. it rests, right? Sabbath is that slowing down, okay? And it slows down and so the body can recover. And it goes down to the savanna and gets by the river there and it, it starts recovering. But you know what the baby zebra does or the zebra doesn't do? It doesn't sit now, sit there and worry about the next lion chase. It doesn't sit there and worry about is its baby zebras, are, are they going to go to Harvard? It doesn't worry <laughs> about its 401k. You know what the baby zebra does or the zebra? It lives in the moment. It's always in the moment. But hmm. as humans, we don't just always rely on the sensory input. Sometimes we let our past and our future get in the way and we activate the same fight flight crisis response in our autonomic nervous system, even though there isn't a lion present. That's what I was going to ask you. I wrote this down. How many of us are living in our sympathetic is it sympathetic response yes. constantly? Is that, is that something that you see where we're always in that heightened state? Oh, constantly. Constantly. It's very, very rare that I analyze somebody here in the United States who isn't breathing too fast, twice as fast as they should, their heart's out of balance, and their brain, when we look at their EEG, is on fire like they're being chased by a lion, right? And so one of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves today is, what are the lions that are chasing our listeners? What are the lions that are chasing you and me, right? They're not real. Like, I'm not going to die today, but I'm going to lay in bed and start worrying about something or think about something. And I'm going to create the same response in my body as if there was really a lion there. And we live in that. And that creates an overproduction of adrenaline and all kinds of stress-related illnesses. Fascinating. So would you connect that heightened state that you're talking about, would you connect that to the rampant anxiety that we're seeing in our culture currently? Absolutely. And what I see in ADHD, like I talked about ADHD and there's a lot more that we deal with, but most of these ADHD people, their, their brain is anxious. And the last thing you'd want to do is put something like an amphetamine in their brain and disrupt their sleep and those kind of things. But so many people I see that come in with, you know, chronic fatigue, sleep problems, anxiety, or even people that are peak performers like yourself, or I do a lot of work with professional athletes. These are people at the top of their game, CEOs of companies. And they're like, they know they can do more, but what's getting in the way is their brain keeps locking in into the sympathetic state and they can't live in the zone or that flow state because the brain is overactivated. And once we calm that down from a clinical perspective, it helps those people with clinical problems. But as, as you've experienced, it takes your game to another level. It takes the New York Times top seller to another level. It takes the Grammy artists that I've worked with to another level. It takes those NFL quarterbacks that I've worked with to another level. So your brain is something that's in common with everybody. And when your brain gets stronger and it's more balanced, it changes everything. So you talk about this balance. Is there a set amount of electricity that we're all given? I mean, you said that everyone's unique. So is it kind of a, uh, is that different or are there ratios that you're looking at? What does that look like? Yeah. So, uh, Great lead in. Thank you. So the uh, <laughs> so what you want to look at is basically the ratio of the sympathetic brainwave activity. So these fast um, firings of neurons in the brain where the brain is firing super, super fast over top of 
the zone brainwaves, the brainwaves that allow us to be in a calm, focused state. That would be what's called the high beta ratio. And I'll explain this a little bit more in detail in a second. But first, let's look at this. The fast waves, the sympathetic waves over the zone ones. When we see that ratio, we can start to see, is the person overusing these crisis waves? Are they thinking too much? And that's impacting them from a stress component. Then the other thing we want to look at is the slow waves, the parasympathetic waves in relation to the ideal frequencies, the zone waves, and see, is this brain resting enough? We live in a culture that is so sleep deprived. It's not resting correctly. And that sets us up for our brain to get running really, really fast because we have no brake pedal. So to explain this, let me use a little bit more science behind this so we understand this. Okay, so the brain primarily works off of frequencies or speeds. Imagine a speedometer from from one hertz to 32 hertz. Now, there's faster frequencies it can use, but for all intents and purposes, we're working off of one hertz to 32 hertz. Just think of those as miles per hour, like a speed, okay, a hertz is how many times it cycles in a second. So 1 to 32. Well, the way that God made us is 1 to 12 hertz. So imagine 1 to 12 miles an hour, okay, is all slow activity. It's in our brain. We fire these brain waves in order, or these frequencies get fired in order to slow us down or act like a brake pedal. Those are all parasympathetic. They're parasympathetic or slow brain waves. 12 to 20 hertz 12 to 20 miles an hour, is like the ideal speed. When the brain is in that speed, it's super creative, it's super productive, it's not impulsive, it's focused, it's like a marathon runner. It can just go, 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 okay? Now, when the brain starts to speed up past 20 hertz, like 20 miles an hour, let's just say that, 20 and higher, now it's in this sympathetic state where it's, it's working, but it's now working so hard that it's, it's as if it's in a crisis or a lion chasing mode. And you were given those brain waves, so you really could deal with a lion. But what many of us do is we've learned habits to use those brain waves constantly as a way to just deal with life. And what that does is it sets us up for all kinds of stress-related illness. It keeps us from being present and aware and it zaps us of our true creativity, which sits down in these lower uh, brainwave frequencies. And in that, isn't I'm trying to remember what I what I a lot. I mean, I learned so much. But one of those is in that um, that higher rate, higher brainwave rate. So you said twenty to thirty-two. Yeah. Isn't this where you see people who are sitting down, bouncing their leg nonstop? Yeah. Like the energy needs somewhere to go. Yeah. So one of for those of you listening, when I talk about how this changed me, I've been sitting here, uh, Tim and I talked for a half hour before we got on, so almost an hour, Yeah. and I, I don't bounce my legs anymore. I don't, I don't shift in my chair anymore. It, it, like, so all of those little things, when you're wondering, well, how does this manifest? You might, be, you might be someone who cannot listen to a podcast sitting down. You have to be running, walking, moving, doing something else, bouncing your legs, these are all the ways these things manifest that we're not even aware of. This is why um, the work you do is so, for me anyway, and I hope for all of you listening, is so compelling because you begin to get behind all of those knee bounces and the person next to you is being driven nuts because you're not sitting still. Yes, exactly. And you can literally see the electrical current. When that knee is bouncing, you know, you're activating the signals from the brain down the spinal cord, over to the knee, and the electricity is just like burning. And it's like, what is the lion that you're running from? Why are you, you're literally, your body wants to run and it can't sleep at night because people are stuck in these states. And the problem with where we are right now in our culture is we're really good at chemistry, okay? And I have a daughter who's a getting her PhD in biomolecular chemistry. So I'm, I'm not against chemists. Okay. But um, we're really good at chemistry. And with that, we can create drugs that move the autonomic nervous system without us learning to move it on our own. So mm. my knee's bouncing. 
I get anxious. I'm having panic attacks. I go to my, and I can't sleep. I go to my doctor's office. What's he going to do? He's going to give me a little Xanax. Okay. He's going to give me something that does what to my autonomic nervous system? It slows it down. It's not very complicated. Okay. Sedatives, anti-anxiety agents are directly impacting your autonomic nervous system to slow down this lion chasing mode. The problem is I've become so reliant on that pill that I never really dig under the surface to figure out what's wrong with my breathing, what's wrong with my heart, what's wrong with how my brain's functioning. And now I think that this pill is the answer to this kind of warning light that told me, hey, you should work on this. But instead, I got this chemical that adjusts it for me. And then what happens is you start doing this for a while, and then the next day, or in a couple of weeks, now you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I feel so groggy and I can't focus, you know? So then you go to the doctor's office and you're like, how about a little amphetamine to get you focusing? A little bit of, you know, something to get the system activated. Well, what does the amphetamine do? It pushes you from parasympathetic up into the fast state of sympathetic. So if you think of side effects that a lot of people have when they take amphetamines, like Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta, and I'm not opposed to these things when they're used correctly, but they, they take too much of it, and what happens? They can't sleep. Oh, that's a sympathetic problem. They get jittery. They get anxious. They can't eat. So you don't. You can only digest food when your body's going slow and parasympathetic. So then you can't eat because you've got these amphetamines on board, right? And so we're stuck in this culture that the there's a pill for every ill, and it's keeping us from looking at this beautiful system that God's created that he's like, hey, you can't sleep. Let's work on your autonomic nervous system. Let's calm you down. Let's rest. Let's find Sabbath in every breath you take. Hmm. Right? But we, we want to ignore that. That takes too much work. Just give me the pill. So we want to say, like, let's get below the surface. Let's see how God made us. And why are these warning lights going off Versus the warning light goes off and we just want to put like a piece of duct tape over it. Like, hey, I can't see the warning light anymore. Well, no, God gave you that warning light so that you would work on something, right? And that's where we, because if we don't work on it, then it's just going to come out as something else later. It's going to move into high blood pressure. It's going to move into type 2 diabetes. It's going to move into weight issues. So we want to get under the surface because all of this autonomic nervous system out of balance is really at the heart of all the things that we don't want to experience. And mm-hmm. if we can get our head around it and get the science around it, it can really push us forward to be all that we were made to be. And so is this some of the reason why there's been research done on people who routinely practice meditation, yogis, um, uh, people in the Buddhist community, and they've shown you can find somebody in their 80s who's practiced anywhere between uh, 20 to 60, even more than that, minutes of meditation per day, and their DNA shows to be far younger than an 80-year-old. Is, is that some of what's happening there? Is they're getting the right amount of oxygen, and they have a new way of breathing, and their brain is in that, that prime zone? Yeah, underneath the surface. And Now, in those cases, um, they don't have access like to the technology that like we would use, where we would say, Um, Let's watch your breathing on the screen. Let's watch your heart rate. Let's look at your brainwave activity. But what they're tapping into are uh, solutions to an autonomic nervous system that's kind of gone awry. And a lot of times I'll do this with people with their sleep. So we do a lot of analysis of sleep. We do uh, mobile polysomnographs where we measure sleep patterns. And we'll look at somebody's sleep pattern before we start working on their breathing, their heart rate, and their brain. And they'll be 10 years older than their age in their sleep. Their sleep is because their sleep gets worse as we age, typically. We'll fix the breathing, the heart rate, the brain will come back and measure their sleep. And now they'll look 10 years younger in their sleep. Wow. They're, we're anti-aging the body and brain <laughs> when, we, when we optimize it. That's your new branding. Everything's about think? anti-aging. Yeah. You just, Tim Royer, anti-aging. Anti-aging. <laughs> but it's not it's not a uh, it's not a skin cream. No. It's uh but it does it does involve some sort of abrasive uh cleaning and some 
what is it? Some Nero gel and some feeds. Talk about that a little bit, what yeah. it looks like. Cause I've been hooked up to wires all over my head. Yeah. So, um, we make it pretty much for somebody who's not really in a clinical situation, you know, just somebody who wants to optimize the CEO out there, the mom who's got, you know, trying to manage kids and wants to sleep better. Um, the athlete, you know, we typically are working off of a one lead EEG, which is, you know, not too difficult to do. And you can do that remotely. And so an EEG is electroencephalogram, just like you'd see at a hospital. But instead of 20 leads, we're just going to put on one. And so what you have to do to get a, a true electrical measurement is you have to clean the area you're going to put the lead on on the head. And then you use something called a conductive gel or paste, which is just a little bit about amount, amount of the size of a pea that you put between the, uh, the sensor and the brain so that the electrical current from the brain can be read. This is all medical grade um, FDA stuff that if you went to a hospital, it would be the same type of technology for an EEG, except we put it in people's homes so they can see what their brain's doing. And so right away, like within minutes, you can see what's the ratio of my sympathetic or fast autonomic nervous system brainwaves to the ideal waves in my brain. I can see that instantaneously and know, wow, I'm running twice as fast as I should be. Or I'm not, my brain is not resting like it should, and I can see that. And so we're using really quantitative data to be able to see that through the EEG. And then some people, if they've had a head injury or have more clinical issues, we'll move that lead around to different areas where they might have been had an injury so we can see what's going on in that area. But through technology nowadays, I mean, I work with people in Australia, uh, Europe, all over the world via teleconference. So, I mean, I just have a guy in Australia that I was working with a couple of days ago, and I'm looking at his brainwaves, and he's on the other side of the globe, and we're literally changing his brainwave activity through the internet from the comfort of his home and things are changing clinically uh, optimally for him because he's getting at the heart of it. He's not just trying to chemically alter it or band-aid it. He's trying to fix this wonderful thing that God created uh, by using the technology to do that. And you, so how, how long does this take typically when you, you assess where people are, and then the process is getting people from, uh, I would say, less healthy ratios to more healthy ratios and optimum brain performance. How long does that take? Yeah, so um, we kind of we're working in steps. So there's multiple things that we might be working on, but the standard protocol is first teach the person to breathe. So you're going to use this breathing belt. You're going to learn to breathe, and then what's going to happen is we're going to interface that that breathing with your favorite video that you like to watch, anything you like to, to watch uh, on your computer. But the only way you can watch the video is if your breathing is in the right speed. So instantaneously, the, the, the moment, you know, let's say you're watching, you know, your favorite show, right? And the moment you start breathing fast again, instantaneously to the millisecond, the screen will go completely blurry. So, Did I tell you, by the way, my buddy in California who connected us years ago, he sent, <laughs> he sent me uh, a computer with your software on it, and he, there was a DVD in it from a friend of his, and when I opened the screen, all the kids were around because they thought it was like the coolest thing ever to see dad's brain on the screen, and it's a, it, the video was a dude naked <laughs> no. from behind walking down to the beach with a surfboard. And every, so obviously my breathing at that point stopped the video because I, and we were all like, what in the world is this? Apparently he had lent it to another friend and then checked the DVD. That's oh, his that's, story anyway. That's his story. Definitely. So yeah. So, funny. so you gotta be careful what content, but the nice thing is nowadays we can, we can do it in such a way that you can really watch anything that you want to watch. And, but we want to create what I'm referring to as, functional entertainment. So you're not just entertaining, you're actually working on something, you're making your breathing functional, right? And so we're doing that. And then once we got that balanced, then we go after the cardiovascular system. So now we're going to work with the, now you're going to measure what your heart is doing. And the only way the technology is going to work is if your heart is in balance, kind of like you were at that table when the milk's 
uh, was spilt was mm-hmm. you were in balance and I could read that in your heart at that moment in time. So the same thing will work with whatever entertainment you're watching, YouTube, whatever you're watching it. And it will only work when the heart is being resilient and strong, not when it's frenetic and in the lion chasing mode and anxious and worked up, but when it's balanced and calm. So cardiovascular system two, usually during this moment is when a lot of people realize that their blood pressure is changing for the better pretty quickly, which is quite amazing. We've seen up to 15 point changes in systolic blood pressure by just breathing. Okay. Hmm. So then from there, we now go to the brain. Okay. So that usually takes, uh, to get to that point, uh, three or four weeks. Okay. So we do a couple sessions a week online. We're there, we're there by under month one. Now we're ready to work on the brain. So now we put the leads on, you get to watch anything you want to watch, but the only way the video will play now is when your brain is calm, present, and focused. So let's go back to our frequencies we talked about. When the brain jumps up into 20 hertz or higher, video stops because that's not what we're where we want you to be. Now's not the time to be in stress mode. It goes below 12 hertz and it's not focusing. Video stops instantaneously. But when your brain drops into that 12 to 20 hertz, that sweet spot, that zone, then all of a sudden the video is playing. And a few minutes in, all of a sudden it stops again. Why? Because you started to think about all these other stressful things or you started to lose focus. And rather than kind of self-check, we're literally, the EEG is reading to the millisecond when your brain starts to fire differently and it's giving you immediate feedback loop. Uh Uh-uh. Just like a speedometer on a car. It's saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to work with this video unless you're in the right speed. That process typically takes about 20 hours for the brain to make a full flip in a way that if somebody was on like a a medicine to sleep, typically, you know, and some people are different, but in most cases, about 20 hours of that, the brain will start to flip. Now you could take Lunesta the rest of your life. Okay. And that uh, is an option, I guess, but you're not fixing why you're not sleeping. Right. Um, typically classic ADHD, uh, that's going to, there's a great book out there, ADD, the 20 hour solution. And it talks a lot about this 20 Mm. hours is kind of the general rule of thumb for the brain to flip. If you think of creating a new habit in almost any area of your life, um, that's not something that happens instantaneously. It takes repetitive behavior because we're trying to teach the brain to focus, not medicate it to focus. And again, not opposed to medicine. I see a medicine as a lot like an ambulance. We need it sometimes in crises. But if you're still in the ambulance five years later, that ambulance isn't very effective for you. You need to figure out why you're anxious, why you're Mm -hmm. depressed, why you can't sleep, why you can't focus, because you were made for more than that. And this helps us augment that. So that is about 20 hours. What usually makes some difference is If people are taking multiple medicines or they've had something for a very long time, it might take a little bit longer. Uh, Typically, people who are just working on peak performance, like a pro athlete or a CEO of a company or an executive or a mom or whoever that's working on trying to just be better, that's going to change pretty much in 20 hours, their sleep and that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the general principle. (laughs) That's it. Just that. (laughs) They're just interfacing with the most wondrous thing in the universe that's ever been created and letting you learn more about it so that you can be what God intended you to be. That's that's just what we're doing, you know? Well, and, and, you know, people have asked me, uh, because I talk about this with people all the time, and they've asked me, what's changed for you? What's, What's different for you? Um, and maybe some of you listening are thinking that same thing. Well, what's, what's different? Um, one of the things, and before I share that, that I want to ask you, Tim, is I've had so many people say, well, doesn't this change your personality? And th- they say that from the standpoint of, um, and I hear this especially from creative people, of people who feel, quote, ADHD, um, or feel like they're always scattered, feel like somehow they're able to make all of these connections, and that's kind of a, 
it's both their gift and their curse. And if they do this, all of a sudden that creativity is going to go away. Or somebody who uh, is an extrovert and always on the go and can manage, you know, 700 things at one time feels like they're going to be able to lose all of that. Um, so have you heard that question or, or something like it? And if so, what would be your response to, is this going to change uh, my personality or change the way I live in the world? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard people like, oh, I don't, they're, their attention problem or their scatteredness or their disconnectedness or their high energy, or I've had this happen with, well, I, I can make it on four hours of sleep, you know, well, uh, yeah. And you're not going to have your memory in 20 years, but, um, uh, that, and we, um, when they see that they're not understanding that they are not as whole as they can be. So all, all this technology, so there's nothing ever going into you. There's never anything going into you. It's observing yourself, like looking in a mirror and being able to, like if you never looked in a mirror, you'd probably be quite a disheveled person. But you look in the mirror and you make changes and adjustments to, to help you look better, okay? Well, this is to take the brain and the body to another level. This is making you more of who you were intended to be, okay? Like I have a client who says, it made a new normal for me. I thought this mm. was normal. I thought this was normal. And then I found out, no, you don't have to live like this. Now, if you want to be more disconnected from people, okay, which is probably the most important thing in life is relationships. If you want to be more disconnected from people, this is not the thing for you. Okay. Is this is going to make you more aware of who you are. It's going to bring you into greater state of presence with people and it's going to be able to help you understand physiologically what's going on for you those people that are struggling with diet up and down all the time you're going to be so much aware you're not going to have to watch the diet as much your body's going to know that this is good for me and this is not good for me if you don't want that kind of awareness that's what this is going to do it's going to create a better version of you and a more present and aware uh, person. And so I get yes. this a lot from spouses. It's like, my husband is like listening to me, you know? <laughs> and he says, well, I've always been listening to you. And they're like, no, this is different. This is like, you're breathing. You know, you're, you're present, you're aware, you're more creative. If you don't want to be more creative, this is not the thing. Because when your brain slows down a little bit, you're now able to accept uh, to get those brain waves that are associated with creativity. If you want to stay in writer's block and obsessive all the time, this isn't the thing. Okay. <laughs> but tapping into that creativity because down in those slow braves, brain waves is where that sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. And we were created by the ultimate creator to create. That's what yeah. we're here to do is create. Yep. And the brain waves, this is very fascinating, the brain waves that are associated with that creativity that made the iPhone, that made the car, that made the internet, all that creativity comes out of 10 to 12 hertz. You remember when we talked about different speeds? Yeah. New ideas come out of 10 to 12 hertz. If I'm up in 20 hertz, multitasking so much, I can't access that 10 to 12 hertz, which is where all the innovation disruptive ideas come from. So if you don't want that kind of creativity, this is not the thing uh, yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, um, the, the most obvious thing that happened initially was if I was in my office um, reading, preparing for whether it's a teaching or a podcast or a book or whatever it is, and my phone rang or I got a text message, that was easily anywhere between seven and 15 minutes gone. Yeah. So I'd be in the middle of a chapter, phone would ring, I'd pick it up, uh, I would talk to one of my kids or my wife about this or that. And just getting back to the third paragraph on that page was agonizing. And now I'm in a place where I can come in and say, this is what I'm going to do today and get right to it, and the phone can ring, and I can pick it up, I can have a conversation, I can put it down, and go right back to it, that just from a, um, 
a, a time saving process. Yeah. Um, the preparation that I have to put in the time that I needed to prepare anything now has shrunk because I don't lose all of that time in my own swimming around in my own head. And so you, you talk about, um, you know, if you, if you don't want to be more creative, don't do this, which I think is hilarious, but I think it, it's, it enables me to access the places in the spaces that I naturally have gone to in a much easier way. Uh, and I think, and I would say this, the, the ongoing discipline, I would say for those of you who are listening, is that breathing, is that slowing down, is that Sabbath. And in the moments where I veer off that, where I feel like I have too much to do or I'm too busy or I'll do it later, those are the times where I can see and feel the way that I interact with people, the way that I interact with my family, the way I respond to whether it's an email or anything else. All of that, I, I can see almost this like I'm reverting back to those uh, brain waves between 20 and 32 hertz. Yeah. Whereas if I'm in a place where I'm breathing, uh, I'm still, it's like my brain's like, oh, there you are. I, I knew you remembered how to do this. Um, and it genuinely, um, I, I don't know if it's exaggerating to say it's l foundationally transformed and changed the way that I work. And it's allowed me to do more with more joy, with less stress. Um, and in those moments where I have to hunker down, like leading up to Christmas, for example, this last year, um, I knew there were things I had to get done to enter 2020 with a lot of peace. And... I can do that. I can, in some ways, like uh, hit the gas for a little bit and go, okay, I know I'm going to do this for a minute and mm -hmm. then I'm going to be done. Tiger Woods actually talked about this. He said he only ever swings at 80% so that when he has to swing at 90 or 95 or 100%, he has, he has it in the tank to do that. And what I've learned is so many of us are going at 100% all the time that when we have to increase, we have nothing. Um, and so it's been, it's been unbelievably helpful for me. And I know, um, the, the, so many people who've, who've worked with you, the friend who connected us, um, I don't know anyone who's done this. It's been like, ah, well, you know, I'll get, maybe I'll try something else. Um, so the work you do is, is incredible and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that we've been connected. Uh, what about for those who are listening? What if someone wants to jump in, if they want to learn about breathing, how, how, um, how can they connect with you? How can they do this remotely? How, where do they find you online? Yeah. So <clears throat> everything really starts with a good assessment. Okay. Not this 15 minutes. Here's my behaviors and that's it. But literally diving in, looking at the brain waves, looking at the heart, looking at your breathing, looking at three nights of sleep, looking at your senses and how they're taking in information. So a detailed quantitative analysis of what's going on. So what we typically do is I, I ship the equipment right to your house. Um, or if you want somebody, one of my staff can actually, you know, come to you. Uh, but typically it's pretty easy to do through video conferences. I can get this equipment to you and we can assess you any place in the world. Um, from there, then I spend about an hour and a half with you after we've assessed and we walk through how you've been created. What is hmm. your body? What's it like? We start to create a roadmap. Okay, you're trying to get from here to here. How are we going to get there? Not just a dart board game where we're just throwing darts and hope we hit things. This is like a detailed map of how we're going to get there, whether that's in sports, in a clinical disorder, or whether that's in the workspace or in academics, whatever. We figure that out. And then through video conference, then we do training uh, through uh, where we have weekly meetings with me or my staff. And we train you through the technology that we send you. Again, that can go any place in the world. Best place to go is to the uh, website, which is Royer Neuroscience. That's R-O-Y-E-R -E and then neuroscience, N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. There, I want you know, look at the uh, media side so you can see all the different videos and, and articles and that kind of stuff. Um, there's also a place that you can reach out and contact me and an email will come straight to me. Um, so that would be, I'd just reach out through the website. Um, you can also reach out through me, uh, through doc, D-O-C, at royerneuroscience.com. That's also, um, so that's a good place to start. 
get an assessment, go from there, read some things, and um, get this roadmap so you know where you're going on your journey. Perfect. And I will, uh, for those of you listening, I will put a link to Tim's website that he just mentioned where you can find not only his contact information, but learn more about what we talked about and also hear from others um, who've gone through this process, share how it's impacted them. So if you're listening, go back to the, uh, to the podcast page, click on that link and you'll get everything you need. So Perfect. hey, Tim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been I love every time we talk, I love talking to you. I just find myself laughing uh, in, 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 as you quoted the psalmist because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and it's beautiful, the work that you're doing. So thank you for being on. Yeah, I love it. It's great, great being with you and our relationship over the years. Just love how it's getting stronger and um, look forward to our next time we're together. It's going to be fantastic. Absolutely. And thank all of you. Uh, thank you to all of you uh, once again for joining us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. My hope is as we continue into 2020, that we would do so recognizing we are whole and we are deeply complex creatures who are fearfully and wonderfully made. And there are ways we can continue to become those who live with greater intention all the time and in all sorts of ways. And so may you continue to find new ways to grow, to expand, and to move toward greater health. And so thank you again to Dr. Royer for being with us. Thank you for joining with us for another episode. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.